don't don't you love worshiping the Lord? I love worshiping the Lord with you. And it, it's really a privilege to have Maddie and Zach up here because Maddie's normally watching the kids and she's here tonight. So we're blessed to have both of them here. Didn't they do an amazing job, by the way? I, I love those words. So teach my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way. I, I don't know if you've been tempted this week. I'm sure all of us have. And when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Yeah, that, that's perfect for what we're uh, reading about tonight, because as we're going through what are called the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, remember when Jesus started his teaching there at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, it was just the disciples up there. They're on top of the mountain. The, the disciples have gathered. They're, they're listening to Jesus. And by the time this ends in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, you're going to see that there's a multitude of people where, where literally every hour this grows and grows. And the people are listening to the words of Jesus. In fact, we ended last week with this prayer that Jesus gives the model prayer, if you will. And I gave you an assignment last week to, to look at the real Lord's Prayer, which is John 17. And we're going to be seeing the differences between those two. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, we read this. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrite. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many uh, words. And so, Father, tonight as we approach this majestic text, as we've been seeing every single text that we read throughout the whole Bible, every section is, is majestic in its own right. They're, they're your words to us. But especially as we approach these beatitudes, these lessonettes or these sermonettes that Jesus is giving to the people there. And as this crowd is growing, as the people are listening and comparing uh, the words of Jesus to the people of the day that were the teachers and seeing that there's a difference in Jesus. And we see the difference in you, Lord. We see the difference in our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for us, the one who was the example for us, the teacher, the the perfect example of a life lived and then a, a perfect death for our sins so that we wouldn't have to bear the wrath of God or we wouldn't have to bear the penalty uh, for our sins. And Father, tonight as we approach this text, as we, we approach our own heart. It's so easy to want to be seen by other people. It's so e easy to want to for other people to look at us rather than to look at you. And Lord, help us to get our thoughts away from ourselves and focus them upon you tonight. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, last week, we learned that this word hypocrite is used more times by Matthew. In fact, 
Matthew uses this word 15 times. There's only 20 times in the whole New Testament, and Matthew uses it 75% of the time. He uses it over and over again, especially in this section here in the Beatitudes later on the book. He's also going to use this word hypocrite as well. And we talked about this term that he's going to use, and it's always in terms of what it was like for the religious people to want to be seen. They lived a certain way on their synagogue. They learned, lived a certain way on, a, on the Sabbath. They lived a certain way in their religious settings, and then throughout the rest of the week, or in their very heart of heart, they were sinners. They had this corrupt heart within them. In fact, John the Baptist and Jesus compared them to whitewashed tombs. Inside is death, and on the outside is this facade of, of purity or this facade of whiteness. And Jesus is comparing it here, as we saw last week, in terms of what it means to pray. What does it really mean to talk to God? What does it mean to be different than uh, those that want to be seen by people. Now, of course, anyone could want to be seen by people, whether you're sitting or standing, it doesn't matter. Uh, wh whether you sing good or, or sing bad, whether, whether you're loud or whether you're quiet, we all have that heart where, where we want to be recognized by people. But what is Jesus saying in this text here? What's the model for prayer, verse 6, but you? And he uses that term very clearly, using those terms for you, directing it at us. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Who are you actually talking to when you pray? You're not talking to other people, right? You're not talking with the group of people that you're with. You're talking to who? God, right? That's the definition of prayer. And when we get out of our big heads, and I direct that to myself as well, when we actually understand who we're actually talking to, it changes our prayer. It changes our prayer life, right? I want to talk to God. This is something that is urgent. This is something that is needed in our lives. And then he uses this other term that we talked about last week as well. In fact, we ended here with this vain repetition. What does it mean to have vain repetitions in our prayer? Not, not just the, the outward appearance of looking like we're holier than thou or something like that. The religious phrases that we use. But, but understanding what it means to have vain repetition. This isn't just repetitions. This is vain repetitions. Repetitions that mean nothing when you pray. There, there's a difference when saying amen, amen, or Lord, or Lord, or Jesus, or Jesus, Jesus, when you actually mean it. Okay? But when it's done in vain, when it's done just to fill time or to look better or holier than everyone else, that is a vain repetition. That there's something about these vain repetitions that God despises. Look at what it says there. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. 
There's this comparison to the, to the heathens when you're praying with vain repetition. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Does God hear one word? Does God not even need a word from you? Just the cry of your heart. Just that word, help. And does he know your needs better than you can voice them yourself? In fact, that's what the Holy Spirit does, right? He takes our heart and he interprets those things in our heart with those moans and groans too deep for words. Those needs or those prayers in the depths of our heart that I can't even enunciate because I don't know how to voice them or put them into words. And it's the Lord that understands the depths of our heart. And, and this is what Jesus is talking about. Do, do you have a prayer life? Do you have a, do you have a relationship with the God of the universe? Or just something of a facade that, that you do on a maybe once a week or a couple times a week or before you eat or whatever it is. Then he gives this example prayer. And unfortunately, we can say this prayer here in vain repetition. Many people do, by the way. We, we can say this prayer here, the quote-unquote Lord's Prayer, as a meaningless prayer. It's an example prayer. It's not just a formula. It's not just you have to do it this way. It's an example prayer. And what it does is it's the meaning of the heart behind the words. Jesus says this in verse 8, Therefore do not be like them, comparing them to the heathen, by the way. That's the example of the previous verse. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. I love that. Do you need to hear that tonight? Do you need to hear that tonight? I think all of us do, right? God won't answer my prayers unless I pray or, or I have to make it this perfect way or I have to say the right words. I have to, to say the formula. No, does God know your heart before you even ask? Now, does he want you to ask? Yes. But does he know your heart before you even ask? Better than we know our own heart, by the way. In this manner, therefore, pray. This is an example prayer. This is not an exact prayer. What he says here, and, and most of you probably already know this by heart. Most of you have memorized this. Most of you may even pray it at times. It's the meaning behind the words. Do, do you mean it when you pray it? God hears it. Okay? But, but if you're doing it in just a vain repetition, it means nothing. There, there's no power behind the actual formula or behind the words. It, you, there has to be the understanding that this is the cry of a heart that needs God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Who am I addressing in prayer? Who am I addressing in prayer? Father. And, and who is he? He's holy. And I have access to the very throne room of a holy and righteous God because of what Jesus Christ did for me. By, by the way, if you look at the ending of this, ver of this prayer, it doesn't say in Jesus' name, amen. That, that's our normal formula, right? And we have to pray in Jesus' name. Did Jesus pray in Jesus' name? That's interesting, by the way. But who does he address? 
and this is the important part, the Holy God, the Holy Father, the one who created all, the one who, one who is holy and righteous and above all, that, that understanding that when I come to God, that there, there's this position that I have, he is God and I am not. And I need him. I need his holiness. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The other aspect of this, there's this relationship of kindred or, or child approaching the holy God. Can I come to him as a child requesting of a father? And, and by the way, we'll see this example later on, but requesting it as God the Father, the one who loves his chi children better than any father has ever existed will love, doesn't he want to give us good things? Yeah. And that relationship, that, that desire on our hearts, that Abba Father, that, that position that we are with God as our Father. He, he's our, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If I'm addressing the God of heaven, should I align my will with him? Should we align our wills with him? And this, by the way, is condition for the receiving of the request, by the way. My desire is to be in line with his will for my life. Not my will, but surrendering my will, as Jesus did as well, to the will of the Father, right? What, wanting what God wants. By, by the way, I, I'm privileged tonight. I'm wearing the same microphone that Larry wore on Sunday. And the, the guys in the back, Jeff had to adjust it, by the way. I don't know, different head styles or whatever it is. He, he said, he, yeah, that's exactly what he said. Wrestling ears. That's what he said. So they were adjusting it. But this is what Larry was talking about on Sunday. And he's also going to be talking about it this coming Sunday as well. The rapture of the church. Thy kingdom come, right? Do you want the Lord to return? Do you want the Lord, if, if I have that relationship with the Lord, should I want him to uh, return? Exactly. And so the privilege that we have is aligning our wills, wanting what he wants, and then we approach the mundane or, or the daily thing. And of course, to God, these aren't mundane, but to us, they may seem mundane. Our daily bread. The daily bread, and I've heard many sermons on this text. You probably have as well. You've probably heard many sermons on the Lord's Prayer. But the privilege that we have is, should I worry about tomorrow's bread? Or next week's bread? Or where things are going to come in the future? What, what is the prayer? Daily bread. Today's bread, today's needs, the, the things I need today. The, does God want us to have our need? Thank God. And does he care for us for our needs even before we ask for them? Yes, he does. This is the understanding that 
God loves us more than we uh, love ourselves. Do you understand that? How, how, how precious we are in the sight of God, just like your children, just like your grandchildren, just like those that you have care over, who do you think of first or who should you think of first? God being the example does think of us first. He, he wants the best for us. Give us this day our daily bread. Now there's a different de definition here in terms of needs and wants, okay? It doesn't say daily cake, right? Or, or daily steak, right? Or, or, or daily filet mignon or whatever it is, right? Lobster. What? No, it says daily bread, the needs that you need today, the sustenance you need today, right? This is the understanding as we come to this text. Does God want us to have our daily, and does he know them before we even ask of them? Next verse there, verse 12, and forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. Now, of course, living in a time where, you know, there wasn't big banks like we have today where loans and various things required lots and lots of paperwork where you could go to a neighbor or go to a friend or go to a family member and ask for a short-term loan or something that you did to offend something and then having them to ask for forgiveness of you or you to ask for forgiveness of them. The, the understanding here is, are you lenient with those that have offended you? Are you lenient with those that have debt against you? Are you lenient with those that may have offended you? But by the way, the example here is of Jesus Christ, God himself. How much has he forgiven your debt? How much has he forgiven your debt? And are we supposed to be just as patient with those around? And are we supposed to forgive those that have offended us or are our debtors, if you will? Uh, by, by the way, if you go to the book of Luke, and, and both Matthew and Luke have this prayer in it, by the way. Exact wording. Just a little bit different in terms of how they start. In fact, in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, this isn't given at the Sermon on the Mount. This is given in a different context, okay? So he might have given it several times. Like all of us, we need to be repetition. We need to hear it over and over again. But in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, uh, we get a little bit different flavor in terms of the reason why Jesus is doing this. Why is he giving this example prayer? Luke chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place. Who is praying? Jesus is praying, okay? That's the setup, okay? Who is praying? Jesus is praying. And then they come to him. They see him praying, and that's when they ask. Who was doing the work even before? Who was doing the praying even before the asking started? Jesus was. Do you know that you can be an example to those around you just by praying? You don't have to preach it. You just have to do it, right? 
And then people will ask, why do you pray over your food? Why do you pray? Why, why do you do this? In fact, that's what Jesus was doing right there. But it continues on there, and I love this part, by the way. And when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciple, John the Baptist. Another example of prayer, another example of a godly man, by the way, the one that prepared the way for Jesus Christ. They had seen him pray as well. He had taught his disciples how to pray by example. And now Jesus is doing the same through example as well. People want to know why you pray. They want to know. Just by you bowing your head, praying over your food, or praying over certain situations in your life, you being that example, do people want to know those things? They're hungry. Their heart yearns for a relationship. Just like you have with Jesus Christ. Just like you have with God the Father. And every time you pray, you can be that example. The last part of that prayer there in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, it ends like this. And, and by the way, we all need this. I Exactly what we read earlier tonight and also sang in the second to the last of those amazing songs that we sang tonight. It says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. All of us have been tempted this week. All of us have gone through various trials. All of us have gone through things in our lives that, that we're not proud of. But can God rescue from us those things? And does God want to rescue us? Deliver us from those uh, temptations. Deliver us from uh, uh, the evil one. Because is he roaring like a lion, prowling about, wanting to devour the followers of God? And does he want to prevent you from praying, by the way? Because he knows where your power comes from. When, when you're not praying, Satan loves it. When you're doing it in your own strength, it could be the most religious thing. It could be the most glamorous thing. It could be whatever it is in terms of doing what is good. If you're not praying, there's no effectual power in it, right? And Satan knows that, by the way. It ends like this, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Is there power in prayer? Is there power in prayer? Yeah. I, I love this. The summation of the entire prayer is a kingdom, power, and glory. And who is every one of those things? God. The, the one that we're addressing in prayer. God the Father, our Father. So the next time, and by the way, it's okay to pray this prayer verbatim. It's okay to memorize this prayer and to pray it. But understand that you're meaning the words behind it. You're meaning the words that you're saying. This isn't just some vain repetition. This isn't just something you repeat, okay? That there's, there's meaning behind the words. There's a depth of, of, of surrender. There's a depth of relationship behind every single one of these words. Hopefully it speaks to you. 
with the aligning of our wills with his, and then asking for our, our daily need, understanding the holiness of a righteous God. Every single time you pray, you're coming before the very throne room of a holy and righteous. And do you hunger for that kind of a relationship? Hopefully we all do as his children. And then Jesus explains this prayer, by the way. He explains parts of this prayer. In the book of Luke, we also see that he, he explains uh, different parts. But in the book of Matthew, he explains what it means to forgive debts or trespasses. Look at what it says there at the very end in verse 14. After the amen, by the way. Uh, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Do you guys know what a trespass is? You've probably seen signs, right? Uh, I I used to live in Tatchby, and you get off the 58 freeway there. There's always these signs, especially in the mountain areas, and, and whether it's for the cattle or whether it's for various people that have property up there, and it says no trespassing, right? And, and, and what does it mean when you cross that fence line? What does it mean when you pro- cross that property line? What are you doing? You're trespassing. You're, you're going across a line. You're going across a gate or a fence or whatever it may be. That is a trespass. And whenever we cross the line of the will of God or, or the line of the law of God or, or the line of the Bible itself, what am I doing? I'm trespassing or sinning, right? Or committing iniquity. All, all these various terms that we see in the scriptures, people trespass against us too. You know that, right? We have certain boundaries in our life and do people sometimes trespass those things? And this is what Jesus is comparing it to. Have you forgiven those people that have trespassed against you personally? Or do you hold a grudge? Or do you shoot them with that shotgun? That, that, that's especially in rural areas, that's the way it is, right? You threaten them. Get off my property. And what are you holding in your hand? Yeah, exactly. But the understanding is, uh, what does it mean when people trespass against me? And compared to what I've done to God, those trespasses are small. They're minuscule compared to what I've done to God, what we've done to God, right? And this is what God is comparing this to. If I can't even forgive someone that's offended me, now thank God for grace, thank God that he does. We'll see this later on. But the comparison here is, how much does God forgive us? Right? Sin. Every single sin in our lives God has forgiven us of those things. And are we called, are we told to obey these verses, called to forgive those that have trespassed against us? Yeah, we are. Look at what it says there in verse 16. And by the way, all all this is in 
in these religious things. All, all these are in terms of things that are examples of the day and also of today as well. It says there in verse 16, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like, and there's that word again, hypocrite. But that facade, that religious facade, where they look different now than they look tomorrow, where they look different in front of a religious setting compared to a, the worldly setting. Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to man to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, there's a time and a place for fasting. The Bible describes this. We'll see this in just a little bit. But what does it truly mean to fast? It's always in terms of prayer. It's always in terms of prayer. Where I give up whatever it is, the meal or the food or a certain type of food or the type of food. There, there's different kinds of fasting even in the scriptures as well. But the understanding is I'm giving up this in order to spend that same time in prayer or the preparation of that food in prayer. That's what I'm doing. Okay, I, I, I'm fasting and what? Praying. It's a preparation for prayer. If you're just fasting without praying, guess what that is? You all know it. It's a diet. That's all it is. It means nothing if there's no prayer behind it. The, the, the whole point of fasting is in preparation for power behind prayer. Preparing my, my heart, my soul, my body in order to come before a holy and righteous God. Now, of course, Jesus, we'll, we'll see this also later on. He partied and he had lots of feasting and he compared that to the, the various Pharisees and Sadducees that, that would love to have these sad faces and torn clothes and, and saying, look how long I've been fasting. You can see my elbows or you can see my ribs. Look at how much I have fasted before God. But the heart behind it, just like praying, always comes down to why are you doing it in the first place? And this is what Jesus says there in verse 17. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to man to be fasting. Wow. Again, who are you doing it for? Are you doing it for someone else? Or are you doing it for God? Are, are you doing it just to impress people that are religious or impress people at your church or impress people that you know? Or are you doing it for the Lord? It's always the motive of the heart. And this is what, Jesus, again, those of you uh, pointing to the people that, uh, again, are, that are growing and growing, this multitude uh, that is coming around to hear Jesus speak so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your who? Father, who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you open. Don't you love that? Who sees every single prayer, who listens to every single prayer, who sees every single thing that you do in the name of Jesus Christ? Who sees those things? Who, who sees your heart? God does. Guess what? If you're doing it for a pastor, he's going to forget. I guarantee it. 
I guarantee it. Or if you're doing it for another person, they're going to forget. Or they may overlook it, or, or they may acknowledge someone else. If you're doing it for someone else, it's always going to be inferior. You're going to get your clap, you're going to get your attaboy, and that's it. You got your reward. That's exactly what Jesus says. You do it on the street corners, you got your reward. But if you do it for the Lord, is there an eternal reward behind it? Love that. There's always an eternal reward in terms of what Jesus is saying here. And again, that word hypocrite is used again, Matthew using that term more than any other writer in the Gospels in the entire Bible, by the way, teen times, and we'll see it later on as well. Continuing on with this theme in verse 18, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where, where do you put your hope? Where do you put your future? And of course, Jesus isn't saying don't have a retirement account, don't have any money or anything like that. He doesn't say that. He says it where your treasure is. Where, where, where what your focus is on. What the desire of your heart is. And the example here is of what do you think about the most? The things that I have here on the earth or the things that I have in heaven? Which lasts longer? Jesus describes it perfectly, by the way. Which lasts longer? Which, which, which of these things are you not going to be having a garage sale for someday? Or you're going to have to upgrade or, or you're going to have to change in a year or, or get a new one of? Whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. Or that's going to rust or that's going to get eaten by moths, right? I don't know if you, you know, I mean, I don't know that many people that, that have mothballs nowadays or anything like that. My, my grandma and my mom, they both had cedar chests. I don't know if you've ever seen a cedar chest before. But what does cedar do? Why are certain drawers or certain closets or certain chests made out of cedar? What's the purpose? Yeah, it inhabits those moths, but also other insects as well that will get into the, the paper or the, the, the cloth or the various things. Do you understand what it means to have an eternal reward? Because even those things in the cedar or the mothballs, eventually what will happen to them? It will fall apart. Or the people that you give it to won't even cherish those things, right? Or the people that you give it to won't even acknowledge them sometimes. But what does God do? Is his treasure eternal? Is his treasure lasting forever and ever? When we put our hope in the temporary things, what happens to them? Again, they're just temporary. They don't last very long. Now, can I use the temporary for the eternal? Yeah, thank God, right? And then you multiply your temporary things 
for the eternal, and do they last longer? The, the, the finances that I have, do the, I use them for various things that, that are eternally purposed. Do I, do I invest in things that have an eternal reward? And by the way, it doesn't even have to be money. It doesn't even have to be finances. It can just be your time, right? Is time temporary? And can you multiply your time? Can you invest your time wisely in things that are eternal? This is what Jesus is talking about here. It's where your heart is also. The, these little sermonettes, if you will, these, and, and by the way that the Scriptures organizes these things, they're in little two or three verse little sections here, okay? They're easy to read. They're easy to understand in terms of the individuality of each and every single one of these things. But then when you add them all up, when you combine all these things, when you take the, the whole, all three of these chapters, all these Beatitudes, all these, the, these sermons that Jesus is telling his disciples and the multitude that is growing, what does it truly do to the life of a person? It changes it, right? It changes our perspective. In fact, that's exactly what happens here in verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. And if therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is this darkness? Now, what is this talking about? Okay, again, this is eternal. Again, understanding this, what happens to a blind person? Does that mean they can never be sinful? No. What eye is it talking about here? It's the understanding here is we see this in terms of what we observe or how we observe things in this world. It's always interpreted through our heart. In fact, that's exactly what the last part of this verse, understanding the meaning behind this. If therefore the light that is in you is the heart deceitful and wicked above all things. Yeah. And when my heart is bad, when my outlook on things are bad, and people like this, I know a person that comes to your mind, or even maybe yourself, your outlook on life, determines how you receive life. You, you may go to the most amazing place in the entire world, and if you go with the wrong people, what's going to happen? When the, when the mood is not good or when people's attitudes are not right, what will happen to that vacation or that place? It will be horrible, right? You may have the most beautiful sunset or you may have the most beautiful view, whatever it is, and one person can have the worst attitude and what happens to the mood. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? It all determines our perspective, how we see things, how we look at things. The opposite can also be true, by the way. You can maybe be in the worst place in the entire world and someone has that good attitude. 
You may be in the most dire of places and in the worst place in terms of your position in life and someone comes along and changes the attitude, right? That, that positive perspective. This is what Jesus is doing. By the way, where he's doing this at, where he's preaching is in Galilee. Remember, we talked about this at the very beginning. This is the place where rebellions formed. This is the place where the rejects and the thieves and the criminals would go. This is the place where the fishermen were, the ones that had that crude language and that loved to party and drink and all the various other vices, if you will. And who is Jesus speaking to? Those people. And is their attitudes changing, their outlook on life, is their perspective changing because of the one who brings light, by the way. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. We can see people also through envious eyes as well. And we can be selfish in our view, right? We can be selfish in how we see the world. We can be envious, if you will. Or we can have Jesus' eyes. And what kind of eyes did Jesus have? Was his eyes just focused on himself? He was always focused on others. We'll see, in fact, every single part, the examples that we're going to see over and over again, starting after the Beatitudes, it's always others focused. It's always reaching out to the downtrodden. It's always reaching out to those that were in need. It's always reaching out to other people. It was focused on others. But this also addresses the root cause of all sin as well. Do you understand where sin originates? And just like what Jesus prayed, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, the understanding that when I trespass against God, he forgives me of my sins. What does it mean when I sin? Thank God that there's always forgiveness. But when sin enters my heart, what happens to that little seed? It grows, right? It grows and grows. And what do we have to do to that sin? We have to root it out. By, by the way, next week we're going to be celebrating communion. And it's always one of those times I always look forward to that, that understanding what it means to, to prepare myself for communion. Understanding what it means to, to root out those sins. To remove those things. But also true cleansing can only come through Jesus. The erasing of all that darkness. The, the cleaning of the windows, if you will. The cleaning of the perspective. The cleaning of our outlook on life. Who's the one that can change your attitude? Who's the only one? It's Jesus. And by the way, he lives in your heart too, by the way. If you know him personally, verse 24 continues on. And by the way, all these things are building. You can see these, the, the, the way if you just read it in context, all these things relate to one another. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, or in the vernacular of the day, money, right? You, and, and you can substitute anything in there for money. It determining your heart. Who do you seek after? Who's the focus? Who's your perspective fixed upon? Again, just like the light that is set up on a hill, just like the salt that has lost its flavor, uh, just like the trespassing, just like the previous verses that we've already read, when I put anything before God, who is now my focus? Who now becomes bigger? The one in the front. E even though they, in terms of, of, of perspective, in terms of actual size, they are smaller, you can make them bigger by your perspective. You can take that speck, as we're going to read later on, and make it big. You can take that little thing that you think is just a small sin and make it your perspective, your focus, and then what does it become? Your God, your idol, your small G-O-D. The answer to all the questions is sitting right with them on the mountain who are they focusing on? By, by the way, who's everybody focusing on? It's Jesus, right? When I focus on Jesus, what now becomes my perspective? Who do I see? I see holiness. I see righteousness. I see the example of one who is unselfish. I see the example of one who loves being with God. And who do I want to imitate? Jesus, exactly. Verse 25, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life and what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? How much does God value you? I got some pictures for you. I had these last week, but we ran out of time last week. Thank God we didn't run out of time. But I took all these pictures, by the way, and most of these are in our backyard. These are just flowers, right? Literally, these will die tonight. They bloom in the morning and they die at night. That one right there is already dead tonight. That hibiscus, beautiful flower. How long do they last? Less than 24 hours, less than 12 hours, right? The, these beautiful flowers, these last a little bit longer, but they're very short-lived, right? These only come up once a year, by the way. And look how beautiful they are. Next one, the colors. And this is what we have here, right? What are these called? Yeah. You see them in the millions, especially this last year. And how long do they last? Once a year, that's it. And what does the Bible say? What does Jesus say about these flowers? How beautiful they are. Look at what the description here is. Do not worry about what you eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. But after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For our Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first, or excuse me, sorry, verse 28. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed 
like one of these. But then the example before that that I skipped over here is of height and length of days. Not just what I wear, not just those temporary things, but even the things I want to change about myself. And don't all of us want to change certain things about ourselves? Those things that we think are inferior to another person, comparing ourselves to another person. Look at what it says in those previous verses. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Can any of us make ourselves taller? I, I, I don't know how you see yourself or a smaller head or bigger hands or longer arms or longer legs or, or a, a smaller belly or a broader shoulders, whatever it is, right? All, all those things that we compare to other people, does God see you as already perfect? And does he value you even more than those amazing flowers? Even more than the birds of the air? Even more than the things that we think are beautiful? Does God value you? Does God see you? I love what it says there in verse 28. They neither toil nor do they spin. Do the flowers have to work themselves into a beautiful flower? No, they just come up, right? They, they, they just come up, right? They're designed by God. Did God design each and every single one of us, even in this room, those of you that are watching tonight, does, did he design each and every single one of you perfectly? And whenever you doubt that, who are you doubting? Who are you doubting? God. He designed you. Now, are you walking in that? Are you walking in that perfection? Are, are you walking in that desire to follow after God? Are you walking in his will, wanting what he wants for you? And that's the question. Because when I'm lazy or when I procrastinate or when I do those things that change my perspective of who God is, what does it do to our lives? God still values us, yes. God still uses us. Thank God that he does. But does he want us to be in a position to be used as well? Thank God that he does. It ends right there in verse 30. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith. And this leads us to the very next section, by the way. Verse 31. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall you eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Again, it's perspective. Do you see how Jesus and his genius, by the way, in his rabbinical teachings and these powerful prophecies that he's bringing about, 
to these people. He weaves this whole theme and then he ends this chapter with this, but seek first the kingdom of God. By the way, referring back to the Lord's prayer, referring back to that example prayer, what are you waiting for? What are you longing for? The kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God. If I put the kingdom of God first, will God make, meet those needs? Will God meet those needs? Yes, he will. Thank God for that, right? This is the privilege that we have. This is the genius of how Jesus is teaching these truths to us. Verse 34, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Just like what we learned about in the Lord's Prayer, meeting our daily needs or our daily bread. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. How many of you have, have lost sleep worrying? And guess what happened the very next day? Were the problems still there? And, and this, this is how God works a lot of the time. By the way, if you, if you were just to, to lay those things at the feet of, of Jesus, if you were laid all those things at the feet of the Lord, and get a good night's sleep and, and watch God work the next day. Is God more powerful than our lack of sleep? And by the way, just what Jesus says here, does worrying accomplish anything other than an ulcer or high blood pressure or whatever it is, right? Rather than leaving those things, letting God worry about those things, letting God solve those things, right? And the promise is if I'm seeking after his righteousness, if I'm seeking after his kingdom, will he meet those needs? Now, the problem is a lot of time we worry about frivolous things. We don't worry about needs. Most of the time we're worrying about wants or things that we have no control over. And that's the problem where we just have to realize that I'm putting these needs at the Lord and Lord, is this actually a need or is it a want? Is it something that I don't need? And that's why you're taking it out of my life. Or is it something that I shouldn't even have in my life? And the Lord removes that. These are the things that we understand in terms of these beautiful verses. We'll, we'll just finish here and, and, and I'll, I'll give this to you because this next section, it really hits home. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Again, this is all perspective, okay? This is looking at the, and it's comical the way that Jesus describes this. And if you imagine this, there's this log, there's this big, huge two by four in your eye. He's talking about you, by the way in your eye, and you're trying with this big, huge two-by-four that's sticking out of your head, sticking out of your, trying to take a pair of tweezers and take a little speck out of your brother's eye. Do, do you see the, the comedy in this? Do you, do you see the, the satire in this? Uh, what, what should you do? It's obvious to us, right? Un unless it's in our own eye. But what's the obvious answer? 
I need to take that big, huge chunk of wood out of my own eye. Now, it doesn't say leave the speck in your brother's eye. It doesn't say correct, not correct your brother. It doesn't say not in terms of understanding what it means to discipline another person. It doesn't say that. And this is what judgment actually entails. When I judge someone, I still have the plank in my eye. That's the difference. Okay? Understanding who is the ultimate judge. People throw these verses in our faces all the time. You can't judge me. No, we're correcting you. No, we're disciplining you. There's a difference. You're taking the word of God, the standard of the word of God, and you're showing them the truth. Yes, I'm a sinner too. Yes, I need to correct my life. Yes, I need to discipline my own life. But this is what the word of God says. You're comparing it to the word of God, not to yourself. And that's where we get into trouble most of the time, right? When I say, let me help you here. And then, of course, we scratch and we make it even worse, unfortunately. But who's the one that corrects? Who's the one that discipline? But by the way, it says it right there in verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? Look, it, look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye. And then when you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. By the way, the word you is here on purpose. D don't wish that someone else was here tonight. That, that person that I know needs to hear this sermon. I better call them and tell them. No. Who is the message for tonight? You that are right here, right? Is God convicting you right now? Hopefully he is, just like he is me. The privilege is that we're going through these beatitudes. Remember, these are supreme blessings. Does God want to bless you tonight? Let me bless you tonight as we go our separate ways. Dear Father, I thank you so much for the privilege of your word. And it seems like I always want to go through more. I always want to, to, to get more accomplished or I, I want to read more. I want to finish a, a certain chapter by the end of the night. And Lord, please forgive me. Lord, help us as we, we delve into these amazing verses that, that we really chew on these things, that we meditate upon these things, that we actually want to apply these things to our lives first and then reach out to other people, Lord, and then share with those around us. So, Lord, just as we see that you're sharing these things to the people there on the top of that mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and, and then this multitude as it's growing and growing, and then they go out and they tell people about you. Help us to do the same tonight. Help us to share your word with those around us this week. Help us to take these verses, maybe just a couple of these verses, or maybe just a part that, that struck home to to, to us tonight or to, to a person tonight and that they would take that and share that with someone else and say, look at what I learned or look at what Jesus taught me or look at these verses from the scripture. Look what convicted my heart. I want to share this with you. Lord, help us to be changed when we leave this place. I hope that conviction, that pricking from your Holy Spirit to work in our lives that that we would have that desire to share your love with those around us 
your passion, your, your focus, your perspective with those around us, Lord, this week. Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. Thank you so much for what you're doing in this church. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless.